Hello, I am Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Re-View Podcast. Podcast. So I'm very excited about today's episode. Uh, it's a piece of art that's near and dear to my heart about uh, aliens coming to Earth and how does that work out? How do we communicate with them? How do they, uh, you know, the whole human versus alien, not as an antagonistic thing, right? Not, not, but like, how do we actually communicate with aliens? Yeah, I love Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, we're not talking about Third Rock from the Sun. Oh. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt though. He's my favorite. John Lithgow's my spirit animal. I like Third Rock from the Sun too. <laughs> Should we do Third Rock from the Sun? <laughs> Maybe another time. <laughs> you know, when I really need comfort food, I actually fire up Third Rock from He's the Sun. He's just sitting there with like a tub of ice cream, like yes! Harry from Sex yes! and the City. He's just like, oh, Third Rock so much. <laughs> It's it's so it's so easy. Anyway, no, we're actually going to oh. talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which we had an opportunity to see on the big screen. Shout outs to the Gateway Film Center here in Columbus. Whoa. Uh, yeah, they do a whole lot of really cool retro screenings, so we get to see a lot of the stuff that we talk about here on the Review Podcast on the big screen. And there's a difference. Uh, I remember the first time I got to see a Bugs Bunny cartoon on the big screen after having grown up watching it on Saturday mornings, right? And uh, so certainly for my generation, Gen X, uh, we know a whole bunch of those cartoons by heart because they would play them over and over and over. But then going, I think sometime in college, I got to see one actually on the big screen, which is how they were intended to be viewed. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. Just a completely different experience. So... Uh, and I think a lot of people understand that difference now when they're trying to decide, okay, what movie is it worth my money and time to go see in a theater? Because we have these home theaters that are so sophisticated. We've got these big screens in our home. That's good for most movies. But which ones justify the trip to the theater? Mm -hmm. And so Close Encounters, God, I haven't seen that in a long time. But I was thinking about it when I went to see Arrival. Yes, we saw right? Arrival uh, late last year, um, which is another... First contact with an alien civilization that's not outright hostile. But, but, but how do we communicate? How so do you communicate? As soon as we saw Arrival, it immediately brought to mind a whole series of movies. It's almost like we do one for every generation, mm -hmm. right? So in the 50s, it was The Day the Earth Stood Still. Great yep. black and white, classic sci-fi movie. Go see it if you're interested in these kinds of movies. Then in the late 60s, we get the landmark 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yep. Uh, which is still in the canon, and we'll probably hit that at some point on the podcast. And then in the 70s, we got Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which we're yep. doing today. Then we get to Contact. In the 90s. Contact, yeah. I still really like that I movie. I love Contact, a lot. man. And then we got to Arrival, which got all this great buzz, and I enjoyed it okay, but boy, when I look at all of those others, that whole continuum of how each generation interprets, okay, what if we really have to talk to another species... Uh, it it fell much flatter than some of these others. Yeah, I think so. I, I've seen a lot of the movies you just named off. Um, and I think this story, this archetypal story of how do we first communicate with aliens, how do we make our intent uh, clear to them, how do they communicate with us, what are the barriers there, that story is in the canon. The question is, of these... Well, you just named off five films. Right. Which is one? Is Close Encounters the one that we enshrine? Do we enshrine more than one? Do they do... Do we... They serve different purposes, I'd argue. You know, 2001 mm. is very different from Arrival. It's the same type of story, but 
you know, I think there's room in the canon for more than one of these potentially, but we are going to focus on that and specifically Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, or we could just say, go watch Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> yes, that's the easy answer. Go watch young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Go have fun. He's It'll be so great. cute. He's so cute. He's a little small. You don't know he's going to be shooting at Bruce Willis with a shotgun in Looper a couple years later. Or walking on the high wire between the World Trade Center towers. Uh, that dude's nuts. Anyway. Crazy. Inception! Inception! Bro! Speaking okay. of big, uh, sonorous noises, uh, there's a lot of that in, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The sound design is really very jarring because the dialogue is mixed pretty low. Hmm. You know, it's mixed very much like a 70s film where it's, it's just kind of, um, it almost reminded me of the sound design of, like, Alien, where you've got to really turn up the volume and then they hit you with, like, the music and it's like, and you're like, okay, whoa, I'm awake. Right, which most people remember from the movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When I was talking to people about how we were going to see it and had just seen it, a lot of people were like, oh, oh I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. Like, they're just, it's not a part of their recent conversation or media mm -hmm. conversation. So I actually was a little um, trepidatious about going to see this on the big screen. It was really Samuel's idea, and I'm glad that he said, hey, let's watch this, because... I remember it was a huge deal to me, right? We knew that Spielberg was a big deal because of Jaws. Star Wars had come out, so that was a monster. And then the next sci-fi thing was really Close Encounters. And so all of these 10-year-olds like me who had been hyped up on Star Wars and had already seen it three or four times, now here comes, okay, it's Spielberg. We know he's Lucas's buddy, and he's doing a, a sci-fi movie. Oh, this is going to be cool! And we jumped in. And it was not Star Wars. It is absolutely not Star Wars at all. So I thought, I haven't seen the movie in decades probably, but I saw it a lot in the 70s and then in the 80s. You know, it was on TV and there were extended director cuts. It was really one of these first movies where you got another bite at the narrative a couple of years later because the director was fiddling with it. It was my idea to see it because I had never seen it before. Uh, I had not seen it before seeing it on the big screen. And you theorized, you're pretty sure that we got one of the director's cuts based on some of the extra content that was on the screen. <laughs> I don't know what we saw, actually, because after we saw it at the Gateway, I was like, I don't know what version we saw. I don't think that's the one I saw, you know, as a 12-year-old. So I went back into the trivia section of IMDb, and, you know, there are like six or seven different versions because they would cut it one way to show on television. Then when the VHS tape comes out, they cut it a different way. Then there's the DVD cut, and yeah. I don't know. What some of those are authorized by Spielberg. Some of those aren't. Like, it's, it's very strange. Bizarre. But to get into the movie itself... Um, well, tell us why you thought it was oh. important to see. Well, I thought it was important to see because, A, I'd never seen it. I, I, it's a big, huge part of Spielberg's filmography. And I, I just uh, also really thought that was one of the things that, uh, mostly not for visuals, but for sound, I probably needed to see on the big screen. Because yeah. I knew yeah. that John Williams' music was, was heavily, heavily uh, celebrated from this film. Yep. And uh, obviously sound and music figure in. I knew this going in, that sound and music are a huge part of the film's actual plot, yes, you know, and, yes. and being able to hear all those notes in, in as large and as clear a fidelity as possible, I yeah, think was important. Um, and Spielberg's films, even stuff that is, I would say, more intimate, more character focused than, say, um, some of his big splashy blockbuster stuff, I think 
it benefits from being on the big screen because of the way he films things. Mm -hmm. he, he always has this... It's, it's a cliche to say, but I think it's true. He has a sense of wonder, especially at that stage of his career, with everything that his camera is seeing. I, I, you know, the reveal in the very opening scene of, of here are these uh, planes from World War II that disappeared, and he unveils them like a secret. And he's yeah. just... The camera is... It'll go really low at some points, like when they're walking along the fence to get mm -hmm. into the junkyard. Yeah. His camera's really low. It's like by their feet, looking up at them. Mm -hmm. And then... The sand kind of parts in the sandstorm for just a second. You see these shapes of these fighter planes. And, like, he's so clearly in love with everything that he's filming. His yeah. enthusiasm is palpable. And getting that on the big screen makes you enthusiastic about what he's going to show you. Oh, yeah. And no, so he's, he's masterful. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but I actually was still worried. you got to believe me that for all of the stuff that I've forced you to watch and had have told you no nah, this is really important even though it's old and black and white i actually was kind of worried about watching this with you because i hadn't seen it in a long time i was like ugh this could just be trapped in the 70s right this this could actually be ludicrous to sit and watch even though you know we know it's a big part of spielberg's career but you know what some things don't age well and i remember at the time it was a very 70s movie right yeah. he's he's showing you uh, a very human view of this first contact, and it, it, I felt going back into it that, you know what, this could totally be weighted down by the time and place that was filmed in a way that I don't think contact would be, yeah. um, or even 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. because, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, they're never on the ground uh, in that time, Yeah, right, they're, they're on the space station, they're out in space. So you have to accept that this is the way humans live in space. There's nothing like people walking down Main Street, USA. Yeah, there's no suburbia. There's there's a lot of suburbia in this movie. There's a lot of cul-de-sacs, a lot of, you know, um, so, TV I guess, dinners. Well, so. right. So I really loved early on when they're showing you, you know, Richard Dreyfuss' family, and you started laughing. Yeah, yeah. You loved Dreyfus. No, okay, so Richard Dreyfus is the star of this film, and he basically has to carry this sucker. I mm. mean, this is really... Yep. Uh, a showcase of his acting, and, and he has to do a lot of it without necessarily other people who are as important to the plot as he is, or even just, like, even present. You know, he's got to do a lot of solo acting. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole scene where he's chasing after the UFO in his pickup truck, and you're just looking at his face looking at this thing? Yeah. That's really tough, to not yeah. oversell that, to, to, to perfectly encapsulate his wonder and his terror and his kind of mania like i gotta follow this thing <laughs> which it, made me think of qui-gon jinn yeah no but right because when episode one came out and there was a, a new generation of cgi a great actor liam neeson guy i love you know on the press tour he's complaining about how he has to do all this acting against a green screen and I'm like, dude, this has been going on for a long time, and Richard Dreyfus had to do it in the 70s. Yeah, no, Man up and do the acting. I, I honestly wish, uh, th th this is the first knock you'll hear from me against this film, but there's a, uh, spoilers for a movie that's, that's over 40 years old at this point. There is a sequence where, you know, he just basically starts to not necessarily lose his mind, but his mind is refocusing on one thing, and so he's... All of this other stuff, all the human stuff, is becoming secondary, and he's kind yeah. of going maniac, and yeah. he's not really in control of his his higher functions as much. Yeah, and he spends most of the movie either building towards that, or coming down from that, or in it. Mm -hmm. I would have liked another scene like the one we have right at the beginning, where it's just him and his family, 
interacting and having fun. Yeah, you and, thought that was great. And it's it so and the bottom line for my worry is it came across great, right? Yeah, no. Instead of being trapped in the 70s, it was like, wow, this is really a chance for me to go back and feel what that was like. And it was so well done that you saw me tense up. You know, there's a fight between he and his wife that yeah. is so intense and they're showing the kids and you know what? It's basically a metaphor for all the divorces that happened in the 70s. Yeah. So that was very real for me, and it was so well acted and done that here in 2017, I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, no, it's it's. <laughs> there's some some very. What's great about this is that even though it's a story about humans and aliens, it's a story written from the perspective of humans and written really well from the perspective of the humans. Mm -hmm. This is stuff mm -hmm. that people are fraying at the edges around this stuff. People are not able to, some people outright reject the idea of this alien contact. Other people are willingly hunting for it. Some people react in fear. Some people react in anger. Um, and it was, that was what was going on. If anybody's listening to this podcast who's younger than 30, I swear to you that Spielberg's not making this culture up. When he's showing all these humans and how they start to get excited and afraid and they start chasing, you know, the aliens after they make this pass through this uh, Indiana countryside, you know what? It was everywhere. We were watching Leonard Nimoy on syndicated television doing In Search Of. And we had movies at the multiplex that purported to be nonfiction, right? The late great planet Earth. And there were all these kind of trashy nonfiction books at the at the bookstore and the airport that were talking about all this stuff. There was literally an NBC show called Project Blue Book that purported to show, to dramatize uh, real-life cases of the U.S. Air Force investigating UFOs. The, the UFO mania and the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot, it was everywhere in the 70s and this movie is really interesting how it starts to tie a whole bunch of that together yeah it follows its own mythology it never breaks its own rules which i think is really admirable especially mm -hmm. when we have uh so many films of the modern era that set up a rule set in the early you know part of the film and then kind of break it which i kind of thought happened with arrival a little bit they kind of break their own oh, rules a little bit interesting but I, I, I really enjoyed it because I think that the human writing, which is king for me, is very strong. I think there's some tonal weirdness at certain points, but the more I thought about it, the more this tonal weirdness makes sense. Because you, if you're going into Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a member of my generation, having not seen it, you know, all you've seen is the, you know, it's a sense of wonder, it's, it's you know, this great musical connection between humans and aliens... But there's like a couple of scenes when we're not quite sure what the aliens are doing yet or why they're here or what mm. they're doing that are absolutely terrifying. That he's filming well, like Jaws. Right. So that's one of the interesting... It's, it's a plus to the movie. It's also a minus to the movie, in my mind. That So he says it's not a sci-fi movie, right? Spielberg in interviews says it's not a sci-fi movie, except we all... Treat it that way, but if you sit down and actually watch it again, which is why we're doing the podcast and we're encouraging you to do, you know, it's a lot of things. It's a family comedy, it is sci-fi, and then yes, it's a horror film. When the little kid gets abducted the from the child. from the farmhouse in the middle of the Indiana countryside, it's legitimately terrifying. Oh my god, like I was really freaked out by that. I mean, that was just because it's 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 not just a child abduction, which is scary enough, but you know, the mother is powerless to stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, you see her trying to board up the windows and trying to close up the vents. And... A single mother. I mean, yeah, there's, and it's... There's a lot of metaphor there, too. terrifying. 
you know, that these people are coming to take the child away from the single mother. Right. You know, and that's... Whew! Yeah, it's pretty freaky. So, um, there's so, also elements of it being a, a military film. I mean, there's... Yes. Yeah. I was really surprised at how, and I remember remarking to you about this, I really did enjoy this film, and I like John Williams' score, but a lot of the time it feels like he's still scoring Star Wars. There's a lot of <laughs> martial to this soundtrack, and some of that is just the way John Williams is, but some of it's also, you know, you know he can break out, out of that paradigm, but it sounds very... This You could use this if you wanted to click and drag this over, like, a Star Wars comic... You, you could do that. Like, people would be like, oh, this is Star Wars music, right? And you'd well, be like, well, actually. But So one of the things that I like about doing this podcast is when we go back in time to look at certain uh, artists and just to remark on, wow, with the passage of time, we can look back and go, what a run they had. And we're going to do that on another podcast that we're going to record here very shortly about an actor. But, but look at John Williams. So in about, what, four years, he does Jaws. Star Wars, Close Encounters, and Superman. That's a Hall of Fame run in four years. Yeah, and then, it's insane. Yeah, I know. And then, but you can even extend that. And then he does Empire, which is my favorite of his Star Wars yeah. scores. Yeah. And then he does Raiders, and the hits just don't stop. Raiders, coming. he does E.T. So, yeah, if you expand the window <laughs> to like seven years, it's crazy. No one's going to do that again. No one's going to have a string like that. <laughs> it's just insane. Um,. So I was concerned, whenever we watch a movie that's, you know, more than 30 years old, I worry uh, that you will think it's too slow, right? Because the pacing of movies has changed, our culture has changed, social media, all the digital stuff has made things faster. And you have said that about other movies that I yeah. like very much. So I was concerned that you would come out of this going, uh, because I remember it as a 12-year-old thinking it was a little slow. I think the first and second acts really work at a great pace and then the aliens show and up and then the aliens show up and it, just, it just never <laughs> effing ends it never effing ends i'm like okay this is the end okay this is the end yeah. okay this is the end it's like lord of the rings return of the king right there's like right. a half an hour that could have been which five I, minutes which i think it was five minutes in the theatrical release oh my, my memory God. when i was in the theater watching it on the first run the there was not much of the aliens because like the cgi wasn't that good and it was it was a little too goofy, and the it was movie like was children in costumes and puppets and stuff is what, what right. the so, trivia page my, says. My memory is, you know, they take Dreyfus onto the ship after just a brief look at the alien, and then that's it. Like like that whole final scene is maybe ten or twelve minutes. <laughs> and and what they showed us on the big screen now was I don't know director's cut number twelve, and oh it goes on for God. thirty minutes. Let's watch each of the individual hundreds of people that the aliens have abducted <laughs> file out and announce their names, and it's just like okay i get it and then yeah. 15 minutes later you're like okay i get it yeah, like, and it yeah. just it, it's interminable which is interesting when we get into some of these director's cuts you know the stuff that we like about close encounters which you just talked about which yeah. is spielberg's sense of wonder and me talking about how he's actually reflecting the interest of the culture at large so those are pluses except it leads to those final 30 minutes because in interviews that he's taped for all these anniversaries of the movie, he literally says, gosh, I wish I could have been the Richard Dreyfuss character going on a spaceship. He wants to meet aliens. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Spielberg literally wants to go on the mothership. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's like, man, I am so bored of making these movies for you ungrateful pricks. I just... <laughs> 
really want to go into space now and not have to worry about seven-year-old Harrison calling me in the middle of the night asking for another Indiana Jones movie. Oh, he wants to do Indy. Come on. No, no, he does. Um, but there were other things that just strike me as not bad, but just weird because I, I come from this from a very different perspective. I, I come from seeing media that's been influenced by this and, and media I didn't expect to be influenced by this. There's a shot where they're in, uh, I want to say it's like Istanbul or Mongolia, or it's, it's when they're finding the, sh the, ship the ship in the middle yeah, of the yeah. desert. That's Mongolia. Yeah, yeah, and they're out there, and there's kind of a nice panning shot of, you know, just a nice Mongolian dude with an AK-47 and a camel, you know, and he's just hanging out, and he's like waving somebody down, and you don't quite see who, and it's actually really peaceful and serene. And then these UN jeeps come tearing over the dune with close air support, from the helicopters that are all marked UN. And I looked at that and I'm like, that's a that's a cutscene from Halo. Like that yeah, is yeah. I I can see where the guys who made Halo were watching this film were like, man, that's badass. And they just wanted to do that in Halo. Yeah. They wanted to yeah. have their Jeep things, the warthogs, just come charging over a hill with close air support. I can show you the cutscene that that's yeah. mimicking after this podcast. So that's a big indicator of whether something belongs in the canon. But I yeah. don't want to get to the end of the podcast just yet. Uh, but, the, well, you know, that influence is really important. Yeah. So, Well, we wanted to touch on some of the other narratives that have done this as well. Uh, we do. We do, although I don't, I'm not sure that I'm prepared to answer the question in okay. this podcast. We'll see if you can get me to an answer. But I think in terms of the, the pace and the slowness of this... Uh, we both felt like there were scenes, before you even get to the aliens landing at the big landing pad, we could have probably cut 10 or 12, even 15 minutes out of this movie. Uh, specifically, we could cut one of those scenes of the French guy leading the researchers around the world. Yeah, there's there's a little too much of that. I think there's they do three kind of setup scenes for this French guy leading a UN research and team we, around the and world. We love the one in Mexico that opens the movie. Yeah, with the, with the World War II fighter you planes. You keep that one. It's cool. And then there's one in Mongolia, and then there's kind of another one in India where they're actually talking with They're talking about people. the music. Yeah, they're talking about music so and people, so I think important. that's pretty important. But you can actually, as much as I love the, the Mongolia shot of the jeeps coming over the hill, you can cut that whole Mongolia scene. Like, I get Probably. it. Objects are not where they should be. I understood that with the planes in the first scene. Yeah. I don't need to see a big boat in the middle of the desert, especially yeah. because it doesn't tell you anything new that the planes in the desert didn't, didn't tell you, yeah. You know, the scene in India where they're talking with the people and they're like, what's this music coming from? What are you guys praying to? What's going on? And everyone like points up. That's a huge, important beat that yeah. you need to have in there. Yeah. But you can cut like the five-minute Mongolia scene out. And you can cut out, I think you can even cut out like the weird talk that they're giving to other yes, researchers. Yes, absolutely, I would cut that. Because I, you know what? Those hand signals that he does... So that's central to the idea of how do we communicate with the aliens. But you know what? Those hand signals were something I was taught. That was a legitimate way to teach music in the 70s. Okay, I was taught those hand symbols as a, like a little preschooler. <laughs> but you know what? Nobody teaches them anymore. Who cares? Yeah. And you don't necessarily think that the aliens would have hands to even do that. Yeah, no. I, I think the music is enough of a communication tool. You don't need to add the hand signals. Yeah, it doesn't... Like the hand signals could be the the aliens might not even associate what you're doing with your hands with music. Like right. you're assuming so much about how their brains work. Yeah. You should so. really just start with the basic blocks of let's hope they have ears. 
<laughs> Let's hope. Well, no, no. So the yeah. the scene in India establishes that they use music. Yeah, yeah. So right? so, so don't expand from that. Correct. Just stick with the India scene. Yeah. Cut the talk in the you know <laughs> barely uh, occupied auditorium. Yeah, just weird. Uh, kill the Mongolia scene. Yeah, we could we could make this feel a little faster. I yeah, think. and you can cut a lot of the final scene. You yeah. know, you can you can just edit it down to where it's okay. They return the people. They return the little boy. Richard Dreyfus goes away. Goes away. <laughs> the end. That's five ten minutes out of thirty. I, I don't know why the aliens want Richard Dreyfus. Why do they want a guy who? They need someone who appreciates the high value of chicken wire. <laughs> I I just you know what I'm going to take some more time to talk about how much I love Richard Dreyfus in this film. <laughs> he he's is so hilarious. great. There's there's a scene where he's trying to collect building materials to make this. <laughs> Sculpture that's been infiltrating his mind, which is hilarious. It's a hilarious scene. It's a, there's dramatic moments in it. It's perfectly shot and acted and directed. And Dreyfus is just throwing things through his window. And he actually, and he's been doing this for like five minutes, and it's just mania. It's just insanity. Yeah. And you're like, the neighbors okay. are watching. Yeah. And like, okay, he stopped for a second. So you're maybe like, oh, maybe he's having a realization. Maybe he's at peace. Maybe he's like, whoa, this is totally insane. He just kind of stops. Pauses and he looks almost at the camera. He's a few degrees off of where the camera lenses. He just goes, "Chicken wire." <laughs> he runs over to his neighbor's house and starts ripping chicken wire out of the ground. <laughs> and that entire line, that entire scene, rests on Dreyfus's shoulders, and he carries that sucker. Yeah, it's so fun to watch. So it, I'm really happy that we watched this movie again, and instead of it just being ludicrous, right? Yeah. Because if Dreyfus doesn't have the right touch. It, it just is silly. I yeah. mean, even so saying this stuff out loud as we describe it on the podcast, it sounds ridiculous, except that it fits the movie, it's tonally right, uh, and he is a very human center to a movie that Spielberg said was a human story. Yeah. So that's why it fits, I think, uh, in this set of movies about humans contacting aliens. I've always loved Dreyfus as an actor, and I think he really did a great job. Having an everyman protagonist is always difficult because you have to balance between making them relatable and not making them boring. Correct. And I, and think, I think this strikes the perfect balance. Right, right. And I think Jodie Foster does a great job at yeah. Contact. She really carries that yeah, movie. I love Contact. Uh, so it's funny, if you were to give this list of movies that I did at the beginning of the podcast to anybody uh, who loves film, you know, they would just say, oh, well, if you have to pick one, it's 2001, right? That's what was handed to me, was that's the movie about humans and, and computer AI and, you know, what happens to the human race out in space. That's it. Except that I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, I need to watch 2001 again. That's why I'm not yeah, sure I can give an to answer today. The podcast. But I think it's a pretty close race between, if I have to pick one, 2001... Close Encounters, and Contact. And you know what? It might be Contact. I love Contact. I need to see Contact. Not to hijack the podcast away from Close Encounters, but we were talking about this as we left the theater. I think Contact is my favorite of the humans meeting alien story. Because in my mind, the one that has the most ambiguity um, yes. in the way that yep. it... It ends... Um, oh, in this list of stuff... You know, that I, that's really what I don't like about Close Encounters is all that stuff at the end with the aliens takes away the ambiguity. Yeah, the mystery is gone. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, still, a, that's a still a problem for me with this movie. Yeah. Even with loving those first two acts, 
uh, and seeing it on the big screen and feeling like it really holds up in terms of showing me the life that I was living as a little kid in the 70s. All of that holds up. And then you get to the aliens and it's just too much of a reveal. Yeah. Well, I really like Contact as well because it takes the things that Close Encounters kind of addresses, but not maybe as much as it should, where like human reactions to this idea are going to be very different. Yes. You know, Contact says uh, there are going to be people who react with violence to this idea. Yeah. And I really, it's a really tough and scary scene to watch in the modern era, but the scene where they blow up Cape Canaveral because yeah. they are so afraid yeah. that humans can finally reach out and contact aliens. Right. That there's this group of religious extremists that just blow them up. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that would happen. If we were on the cusp of that, someone would try and take a shot at doing that. And, and, and Arrival has a touch of that, but you know what? I just, I came uh, out of Arrival's a, version is so weak sauce. I, I know. So I, that, that, exactly. I came out of Arrival thinking, well, I've seen this movie before, yeah. right? Because of watching all these others. And it just wasn't up to the artistry of these other movies. Yeah, and I also don't believe that, again, it's uh, in contact that act of sabotage and terrorism is undertaken by terrorists. In Arrival, they have it be a bunch of United States military guys, and I'm sorry, I just don't believe that the military guys assigned to this top-secret operation would be so ill-disciplined as to, you know, crack uh, under the idea of there being aliens. I just feel like the people mm -hmm. who should be selected for this task are probably the best of the best. That's I would true. Probably, That's true. They're not just Joe. You're not... They're not enlisted dudes. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, they probably have like SEAL Team 6 there right. doing really basic stuff, just standing guard, but they're like, we can't trust this to anyone who might crack under the pressure yeah. of seeing a giant monolith in the sky above yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we got to wrap this up. I, I don't think I've been talked into saying that Third uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is the one movie. I do feel like... If you have a chance to watch it, if it pops up on cable or if Netflix makes it available, please do watch it again. I think it'll be worth your time. It's very interesting. It's human. Dreyfus does a great job. But what do you think? Despite all the praise that I've heaped on, I don't think it is in the canon. Certainly not this version that we watched. Certainly not this director's mm -hmm. cut. It's just the third act is such a drag on it. Yeah. Uh, it really lets a lot of the air out of the picture. Yeah. Little details are weird. I mean, John Williams' score is good, but I don't think it's the best for a movie like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I remember talking to you about the music as we were leaving, where as good as the score was, it's not really necessarily the best for Close Encounters because it's always going to be overshadowed by a piece of music that is a plot point. Yes, right. You know? If you look at the whole soundtrack, you know... And then you ask, well, which John Williams soundtrack from that seven-year run do you recommend? It's not Close Encounters. No, no, no. And he, and he if did you better ask, work right you, next to it. Yeah, and if you ask someone to hum, you know, like, hey, can you hum anything from the Third Encounters, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind soundtrack? They'll be like, hmm, 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 hmm. And so there's and no way it. anything that's that it. he could yeah. write would overpower <laughs> a piece of music in the plot. Yeah. You know, yeah. that stuff always takes precedence, and that's. That's, I, I think the general character is also pretty weird and a little undercooked. I wish they had done he more is. with him. He is. He's undercooked. So, um, yeah, it, it, the... I think it's just under the line of being in canon. Um, I'm ready to answer right now in terms of the, the one of these stories that I think goes into canon. And don't, 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 don't say that. Come on, we got to talk about it in its own podcast. Okay. Spoilers, it's Contact! Hey! <laughs> no, but we'll talk about Contact another time. Thank you guys very much for listening. I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this has been the Re-View Podcast. Podcast.